0: Fandom University. Every other week, we deep dive into the topics we love and obsess over. Comics, novels, movies, sci fi, and video games receive the elevated discourse they deserve. With your overworked TAs, Sean and Sergio.
1: Hello, all you new gods and Omega mutants out there. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Fandom University. My name is Sergio.
2: And mine is Sean.
1: This is the first episode of the Grant Morrison mainstream era arc. Uh, We will be discussing Grant Morrison's work in the mainstream. Obviously, they have a ton of, uh, you know, outlier stuff, stuff that, um, that even comic book fans may not have heard of um, such as you know we three or zenith exactly but for the purposes of this podcast of this arc we will be discussing the stuff that you probably have heard of like the x-men and the justice league
2: and batman arkham asylum we have a special chat with our friend crystal o'leary davidson about that one
1: exactly and it's going to be it's a lot of fun Graham Morrison is a writer that came, at least for me, came onto my radar when they started writing JLA, you know, and this is, this is a book that has Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, you know, all of DC's heavy hitters are collected in one book. And I would have been, I guess, around 13 at the time. And so I, you know, I've been reading comics for about half my life then, but still, you know, like I, I don't, I didn't follow writers the same way I do now. Nowadays, Brian K. Vaughan starts a new book. I'm, I'm jumping to that and I'm, you know, I'm going to read that. Whereas then I was just reading, you know, characters that I enjoyed.
2: Right. Like you, you read Spider-Man, it, you didn't really think about who was writing it. And especially when we started reading comics in the early nineties, it was in the middle of the, the artist boom. So we knew a lot more about artists than
1: we yeah. Jim Lee's and Rob Liefeld's and all that Tom McFarland's. I didn't like I said like by that before that I wasn't really following writers and so that was the first time that Grant Morrison sort of came onto my radar yeah
2: and I I think that's how I found out about them was just borrowing your issues I I'm trying to remember what I read first it might have been the Prometheus arc which we'll uh talk about in a little bit but um that was the first DC book outside of Superman or Batman, like family titles that I started collecting regularly or trying to get every issue of At First I did it in trades and then eventually I picked up most of the issues um, and have sort of followed their career off and on ever since. But JLA is sort of the comic book that really cemented me as a, And I guess a lifelong, I don't know, it's sort of my gold standard book. Um, You know, I mean, going back, it's definitely of its time, but like the way it felt to read those stories at 15 or 16, like eh, was exactly what I wanted out of a superhero comic book. Um, And so, you know, definitely started a lifelong love affair that um, has not abated with Morrison and, and their work.
1: Yeah, I'm sort of just uh, perusing through their bibliography. And yeah, like I there's not much that I feel I would have recognized before JLA as a, a preteen, say for Batman Arkham Asylum, which I'm sort of glad I didn't read <laughs> at, you know, uh 10 because it might have like freaked me the fuck out.
2: Yeah, um that's definitely not a book for kids, whereas JLA is actually a pretty
1: Although I was also reading Preacher at 15, so maybe not. Well,
2: I think if you read Arkham Asylum at 15, maybe. But honestly, I feel like Preacher is easier for a 15-year-old to get than Arkham Asylum. Uh, True, yeah. Because, you know, uh, Preacher is very much what I would call a, a a crowd-pleaser type book, at least for a certain crowd like us. You know, lots of violence, lots of swagger, lots of dark humor, uh, whereas Arkham Asylum is elliptical and weird and European in a lot of ways, so...
1: Arkham Asylum is, and well, speaking of Arkham Asylum, we've got some giveaways for this arc that we want to give away more shit. We'll give away the world if it means we get listeners. For this arc, we're going to give away a couple of books. We're going to give away a copy of Grant Morrison's own book, Super Gods, What Mask Vigilantes, Miraculous Mutants, and a Sun God from Smallville Can Teach Us About Being Human. It's, uh, it's one of Sean's favorites. He says, in uh he's referred to it as a a holy text several times yeah
2: it is one of my holy texts It, it I mean Morrison you know is my hero like period full stop um and that book always sort of leaves me reeling even though I've read it like three or four times and wanting to go out and make stuff so if you are a fan of comic books, a fan of superheroes, or just somebody looking for like a a creativity jumpstart. Like this is a book you want to read. Like it's, it's, I don't know. It just fits perfectly into a slot in my, my chest.
1: So we'll be giving away a copy of that. We will also be giving away a copy of theirs and Dave McKean's seminal Batman work, Batman Arkham Asylum. Uh, And this is where it gets fun for the listeners at home. Uh, there's actually, there's a relatively new, it just came out last year edition. It's a paperback that if you were to win, you could select, you know, from option a, you could select the paperback and you would get it immediately. We'd send it to you as soon as you're, as soon as the winners is, is drawn, but what's behind curtain number two, there's a brand new hardcover edition coming out in October. If you are will if you win and you're willing to wait until October, you could definitely select that as well. So those are the I guess two and a half options. There's yes. you know, there's I don't know how math works that's why that's why we're, well, neither of us do that's why we both write.
2: That's right. That's why we got our masters in the humanities. Fuck yeah, math. Fucking math.
1: <laughs> I don't need I don't need math. Who needs math? I've got a chemist wife for all the <laughs> science stuff, for all the hard science stuff. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, let's go ahead and jump into our conversation with Crystal O'Leary Davidson. She actually helped edit a collection of essays along with Lisa Winger-Bro and Mary Ann Garice called The Monsters of Film, Fiction, and Fable, The Cultural Links Between the Human and Inhuman. And what's exciting about that book is if you were to look on Amazon for it, it's like a hundred bucks. But the publishers, Cambridge Scholars Publishing, is uh, has just released a paperback version of the book, which is a lot more affordable. We will definitely be posting links to that In the show notes but let's go ahead and just jump into it we are here with crystal o'leary davidson she is a professor of literature specializing in gothic studies and also film studies she also dabbles in fiction we are going to be discussing uh arkham asylum by grant morrison their work with dave mckean which crystal teaches as part of her gothic literature studies class crystal say hi (laughs) hi
0: everyone thank you so much for having me thank you for
1: Thank you for coming on. Yeah, we, when we were discussing doing a, an arc on Grant Morrison and discussing, you know, which of their works we wanted to talk about, uh, Arkham Asylum was one that pretty much stayed constant throughout, you know, the, the editing process of that because it is so seminal and, and unique in the Batman mythos. And Sean said, I know the absolute perfect person to talk to you about this. So, uh, you know, when, when did you first read Arkham Asylum?
0: Um, I actually first read it in, I think it was 2018 in preparation for a Gothic class that I was rejiggering in 2019. I was working on kind of a combo class that was weird fiction and the Gothic. And uh, that particular class had a huge section and focus on structures. So physical structures and how they link with psychological structures in the Gothic. And so I've been teaching a little bit with graphic novels. Um, I've done the killing joke in a few classes in an American literature class and in a Gothic, another Gothic studies class. And there's just been this kind of growing interest amongst the student body about, well, how do we, we read graphic novels, but how do we analyze them like text? So you get your film students, you get your comic book fans, you get your literature people that want to stretch. So that's sort of how I came to this particular book. Um, My husband, Andy Davidson, is a huge Batman fan. And so I was talking to him and he actually suggested it to me to read.
1: And did you have any sort of experience with Batman before that? Or were you just kind of a, just known from the movies or were you a fan at all?
0: Um, I've actually been uh, a DC fan. I mean, I am not like deep, deep, deep dive, but I read Batman ever since I was a kid. I, I loved DC. I, I love Marvel too. I'm a big Spider-Man fan, but um, really Batman, Catwoman, those were like seminal figures for me when I was a kid. I remember running around the playground with my friends playing, you know, Batman and Joker, Riddler, Catwoman... <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so have, having grown up being a fan of Batman and then reading this, you know, just fairly recently, like what was your reaction to like to something that was that's so drastically different from other like I guess um, interpretations of the character?
0: Well, I've been really interested in the realism movement in comics, it kind of starting in the 70s with the social justice topics that kind of started to inform it. And then developing into that darker era of realism in the eighties to like the early nineties. And so I I found this, the idea that Batman was this dark figure had been with me in, um, from the movies and from other books like Frank Miller, but this was so, this was so wonderful and weird and different because he's so vulnerable in this book I mean, he's physically vulnerable as well as psychologically vulnerable, and that was a Batman that I had not seen before. I mean, Frank Miller, he's older, and so he's got some mileage on him, but he's not—he's so much more physically vulnerable. I feel like in this,
2: he's more brittle here mm-hmm. than he is in The Dark Knight Returns, I think. And Dark Knight Returns is—he's very hard boiled. He's—he's uh, yeah, he's grizzled. Yeah, right. Yeah. Kind of hard to rattle, and this Batman is very rattled uh in of Asylum I think
1: yeah he goes through the uh the Rorschach test and just after uh maybe half a dozen I guess like you know uh cards
2: free association yeah he,
1: he kind of like kind of breaks down you know once hate- he yeah once he gets to his father he just sort of loses it
2: mm-hmm. so um sort of doubling back I guess to your your history with with Batman and with the Gothic so um what, what is it about the Gothic in particular that appeals to you uh, as an instructor or just a reader?
0: I like the idea of the Gothic's root in horror. And um, I've always had an interest in structures and buildings and history. And so I like the Gothic's ties to physical structures, but also decay. I, know, I was a creepy kid <laughs> 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 um my mom i think it was like in the fourth grade she gave me one of those little children whitman's collections of poe stories which they would never give children now I <laughs> and i started reading poe probably too young and i was just like i love this ooky stuff and i used to watch hammer films with at a channel 17 out of atlanta before it was a super station and so I think it's just like a childhood fascination with the Uki and the gross. And, and then um, I think actually my first conscious thoughts about the Gothic as a genre to analyze might've been in college when I saw Blue Velvet. And I don't even remember if somebody said something to me, but that opening scene with that credit sequence, and then the camera finally pans underneath the ground and you see all those beetles eating each other. There was just something about that. And I think, I, it just opened my mind to the gothic it doesn't have to be poe or it doesn't have to be you know stephen king all these things i love it could be other manifestations and so i guess the fact that the gothic is so malleable maybe one of my it's like pretty much i have a student who jokes with me all the time saying you know the gothic can be anything and <laughs> in a way she's kind of right
2: yeah it's almost more of a an attitude than a than a set of tropes necessarily although there are definitely some tropes that are associated with the gothic you know traditionally uh like you talked about structures you know crumbling castles uh which of course batman being the quintessential gothic superhero um and i hadn't really thought about that what you said about structures in particular i mean this is literally a book built like a house that about a house um so that's I I can't believe I've read this book several times and I never put those dots together with the Gothic. Um, So (laughs) nicely done.
0: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I think I was teaching a class um, and we read The Shining like maybe the semester before. And so I just had houses on my mind that were kind of animated houses, houses that had forces of personality that the people dwelling inside of them could be ghosts or could be people trapped by these structures or could be emanations from these structures and so I had that thinking about the overlook in that way so I think that that was one thing that just blew me away with this book Arkham Asylum I was like it is like the overlook in that sense
2: yeah it really is a haunted narrative um yeah I I, 100% and it's not striving for realism at all um it's deliberately I think Morrison refers to it as, you know, deliberately elliptical, um, you know, and, and sort of an answer to that, you know, the Alan Moores and Frank Miller's kind of a, you know, still for grownups, but like in a completely opposite direction in terms of, you know, not what would it be like if superheroes were real, but what it, you know, let's draw out what's really interesting or strange about this world, this character. Um, so yeah, I, I, that makes that makes a lot of sense
1: i was gonna say it's there's almost this hyper realism to or like aspect to this to this work where it's grounded there's nothing overtly supernatural or um or i guess like even like comic booky about this i mean this this reads i mean this could be like any like regular hostage negotiator going into and negotiating with you know with a with a with a with a group of kidnappers and trying to, trying to work as the go between, between, uh, between them and, and the and law enforcement, except, you know, it's the Joker and it's Batman and it's the rogues gallery of, of, you know, in DC comics. And at the same time, because of that, it's there, it's realistic, but it's also heightened and the structure itself, the building, it is its own character in a way. Yes. Because it, it, like looms over everything, in both the narrative of Jeremiah Arkham, and the in the past and the present narrative with what's going on on April Fool's Day, which is such a brilliant touch that Grant Morrison <laughs> uh, gave us.
2: So you've been teaching it for a couple of years. How do your students usually respond to it? Like compared to maybe some of the other stuff, or or even I would also be curious since you mentioned the Killing Joke. I know that's not Morrison, but um, that is sort of the other big. Batman graphic novel that isn't the Dark Knight Returns, you know, those are kind of the um, how, you know, what if, if responses are a little bit different, uh, or, or if they're, you know, just sort of universally like, yeah, we get to read a comic book for class or what.
0: It seems like this gets a really interesting mixed reaction from students, because I have students who have read graphic novels, but for some reason, whatever reason, this is the one that they missed even some Batman fans. And so I think because the artwork, McKean's artwork is so different. I mean, Sandman covers a side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so dense, each of the panels. And so you have some people who are comic book people who are kind of frustrated by it. But I have a lot of students, um, some of the film students and art students, they just love it because it's yep. so rich. The, the images... And the text are married. I'm Every time I read this book, I, I'm i still straining at some places to read the Joker's lettering. Like every now and then those, there's like, in fact today, and I can't remember where it was, but there was like this one word where I kept looking at it going, what is that word? I can't exactly, I, it could be this or it could be that. And I, I find it fascinating. So you, there's usually two camps, students who are like, all like, yay, we get to read a comic book. And then they get into it. And they're either like, wow, this is blowing my mind. I love it. Or I don't like this. I'm very frustrated by it. Or there's weird elements that make me uncomfortable because of all the times that Batman's masculinity is challenged. In. And I think some students love that and think it's so subversive. And there's a few students who are very like, whoa, I don't know about this.
1: <laughs> yeah, that that was, um I was... I wasn't, I guess, like, you know, startled by it, but I thought it was such an interesting and brave choice by Morrison, um, especially considering, I mean, in today's climate, you know, seeing sort of, um, I guess, a uh, non heteronormative Joker, it wouldn't be as shocking. But in 1989, I'm sure that ruffled a lot of feathers, especially you know, this era of, you know, this is the era of Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and and stallone. Sylvester yeah sylvester stallone and bruce willis you know these like you know masculine uh action art. heroes are you know archetypes and then you've got and even jack nicholson's uh portrayal of a joker in tim burton's batman is 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 pretty masculine you know he's um he you know he's got the vicky vale character that you know he's um he's
2: but, i mean his boss tries to murder him over a woman it's yeah, literally exactly. about sex yeah
1: And, and yet in this, in this work, Morrison, um, you know, has Joker wearing heels and, and squeezing Batman's butt. And I just thought that that was such a brilliant way to counteract the, like, like sort of that archetypical, uh, like masculine prototype that Batman has been in for so long.
0: Well, I, when we talk about it in class, um, I always try to kind of frame it in, um, that the gothic is all about subversion and, and my own personal take on the on the joker is that maybe at his core he's asexual and so that all of this kind of butt squeezing and honey pie darling stuff he does with batman is just a way to kind of be transgressive and be aggressive in that transgression um, but also I like the idea of like maybe he does think Batman's hot.
1: <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean like yeah. History, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, that's yeah. that's <laughs> such a fascinating thought there's I mean as as much history as they have I mean there's got to be some sort of attraction there. You know, whether or not it's romantic, I mean just maybe visceral. You know, like you know Heath Ledger's line in The Dark Knight where he says I have a feeling you and me are going to be doing this for a long time. Yeah. I mean there's gotta be some sort of like, I, mean, I, don't, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know how to describe it, but the fact that Morrison put it out there is so intriguing to me.
2: And I, I think Morrison's book, I mean, granted, I don't know the entire history of um, all Batman comics, but I think it might be one of the first places where you get that idea of escalation or the bad guys exist because you're here. So they're here in reaction to you and the Joker is reacting artist of all. Um, which, uh, you know, that may have popped up in the comics before, but um, chronologically, as far as my reading goes, like that was the earliest I'd seen that idea pop up before, you know, like it pops up in the Nolan movies. And um, I think some of the, I think they eventually got to it in the animated series as well, where, um, you know, the idea of the the villain starting to blame Batman for their existence. Um, but that's a fairly, or not It was fairly, at least for the time, I feel like, revolutionary idea.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, This idea that you made us, you made us, you created us, you put us in this place, you've made Arkham or you've animated, you've turned the engine of Arkham. I kind of feel like, again, I guess making that comparison to the Overlook, they talk about Danny, like he's the key that can turn the engine of the Overlook. It's almost like Batman's that key that is turning this engine and making Arkham, be this, I don't know, machine, this hell machine or this organic creature. I like that. That's,
2: yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it it makes so much sense because there's that symbolism of the bath that keeps popping up in Jeremiah Arkham's journals. It's almost like he, whether it's coincidence or not there's definitely an archetype that's repeating whether coincidence within the framework of that reality not coincidence story-wise obviously morrison and mckean planned that but uh, but yeah that that idea of it, that that maybe cavendish actually understands a little bit better than um than anybody else what's actually going on here
1: yeah, i wanted to discuss um dave mckean's artwork that you said that you know some like especially like the, the film students really dig it And, you know, having read as many comic books as I have in my 30 plus years of being a comic book fan, reading, you know, reading it and enjoying and seeing the artwork, uh, it's incredible because it's so different. And like you said, like there's some, some of the Joker's dialogue is so, can be hard to read, can be hard to decipher. And it's just like little touches like that, that, you know, like what he's saying can often be nonsensical and just sort of be like madness. And so not being able to read it, you know, kind of makes some sort of, some sort of like a artistic sense too. Um, and I, you know, it's just crazy to think that it's, you know, this came out the same year as Tim Burton's Batman, which was such a commercial success. And I just can't imagine, you know, somebody like watching that movie. And then a few months later saying like, Oh, there's this new comic book there's a new Batman comic book. I'm going to check it out. And I wonder how, like how many of those became lifelong comic book fans and how many like never stepped into a comic book store again.
2: <laughs> I, I think Crystal um, hit on something that, that Morrison also says in their book, which is that comics fans tended not to like it. And people coming to it from outside that fandom seemed to cotton to it a little bit more because they maybe because it didn't, they didn't have the same preconceived notions or maybe because it delightfully upends the notion of what they think a comic book should be or, or usually is. Um, Cause yeah, I, I was thinking about that, like how in most superhero movies or um, in comic books, there's such an emphasis on making sure the audience can understand what's going on, can follow the story, can see the stunts, the action, all of that. And this is a book that doesn't mind leaving you behind um, or or forcing you to kind of sit and look and try to figure out what you're actually looking at, especially in some of the darker scenes. Like I, towards the end of the book, you know, when Batman takes an ax, I guess to the door, although I thought it was piping at first. Right. Um, I'm still not entirely sure what's going on there, except him saying like, you guys are free now at the end. Um, Stephen King might've talked about this in dance macabre, where he talked about how a lot of times the most revolutionary works in a genre are dismissed by the biggest fans of the genre at the time. And then sort of later as they gain status outside in the general world, you know, like I think Dune might've been pretty much dismissed by some hardcore sci-fi people back in the sixties. And now of course, it's considered a classic and we're about to get a new movie and all of that. But um, so I, I, I think there is something to to be said for this is a comic book for people who maybe don't always read comic books, so especially superhero comic books.
0: I think it's really interesting too that the he that from what I understand, Morrison, they didn't want uh McKean as the original artist. That oh was, really? Interesting Brian Bolland was his first choice. And, and, and I, I th- yeah,
1: a huge fan of his, but I love his work. Much different yeah. story.
0: Because it's like if you had one of his panels, it was on would all be bright and colorful and clear and probably hyper real. And the symbolism would have just been like, Bam, there it is. It's not as murky. And and McKean, you know, he didn't like he didn't even want to do it because <laughs> he do superheroes and he was like, No Robin, <laughs> I'll do it, but no Robin. And and so I can't imagine this book the art from any other artist, though with this because it it really underscores I think what this dreamlike structure that Morrison they're going for
2: even in the at least in the my my trade copy um Morrison or maybe it was Karen Berger who was the editor of the book uh talks about how the script actually changed once McKean was on board uh to sort of be a little less restrictive to give him more room to sort of interpret or grow the story in terms of pages. Um, a little bit, I mean, it's still, you know, Morrison's story and, but, but as far as how it actually played panel for panel, in some cases McKean actually was given a little bit more, um, free reign than probably an artist like Boland would have had, you know, um, who, you know, um, is amazing and does incredibly detailed work but probably would have been very faithful you know to the script um more interested in bringing it to life you know than than interpreting it i guess if that makes sense
0: yeah it does yeah absolutely
1: yeah, that, that's yeah that's a really that's a really insightful way of putting it it's it's mckean's artwork is more of an interpretation of Mar- morrison's story than i guess a, a translation of it
0: yes
2: and I love how dreamlike the book is. It. I love art that I hated this kind of stuff when I was younger, but now that I'm older, any artwork that can successfully transplant me into sort of a dreamlike state when I'm waking uh, is something I tend to have fondness for, or be predisposed to like. So um, I think I was a little bit sick the first time I read this book. And I remember getting to the part with um, the Mad Hatter and just being like, Holy shit! Like I have no idea where I am or what's going on, but I know I like this book. Um, Probably just had really bad allergies or something. But too much um, Robitussin. Too much (laughs) Robitussin. Yeah, all hopped up on over the counter cold meds. so uh, I guess talking about interpretation, um, you know, symbolism and stuff that, that was one of the things we wrote in our questions. You know, this is a book that has a lot of symbolism and impressionistic imagery. Uh, it leans heavily on tarot. It also plays with some of Alistair Crowley and obviously Alice in Wonderland gets mentioned, you know, which I think Alice in Wonderland sort of the gimme of those three in terms of, you know most most kids at least by exposure to the disney movie have some familiarity with that story and with its uh most famous lines but the other two i'm i think are a little more ambiguous in terms of what they're actually doing in the narrative not like why are they there but like what are how are they helping and what are they accomplishing i guess and i was kind of curious about your thoughts or even Sergio's about like what those um yeah, what they're doing, what the, how they're working.
0: I've We've always talked about the, the symbols in it. I know that Morrison, they were leaning heavily into like free association and, and kind of free writing when they were coming up with a, a story for this. And so the tarot connecting with Jung and the unconscious, the idea that maybe they don't represent a certain thing, but they're just part of the sort of organic soup of this dream world. Um, that's sort of the way we've been talking about the use of that kind of symbolism. And, and I think maybe the story itself sort of supports that because Dr. Ruthie gives uh, Harvey Dent, you know, takes the coin away and says, You're going to do the dice. You've got six choices. Now you're going to do the tarot. And you've got like, what is it, like 70 something choices? And Batman comes in and says, "You've you've destroyed him, his personality." And she's like, "Well, psychiatry—you have to rip the house down to rebuild it. That's mm-hmm. right, <laughs> what you do." And so, at the very end, he uh, Harvey Dent goes from I, you know, go to the bathroom because you know on the floor because I can't make up my mind what to do because I have too many choices to the very end when he gets this coin back. I love that the idea that he sort of rejects all those sorts of massive uh, muddy choices that the tarot was giving him. And he goes back to the coin, but then of course he, you know, spoiler here, um, (laughs) he flips the coin. And it's, if it comes up, you know, the the clean face on the coin, Batman lives. And of course he says, oh, you're free to go. You live, you don't. And of course we see it later in his hand and it's not that-
1: Yeah, it's the scarred uh, side up. Scarred
0: side, so he's actually made an independent choice there. So that's been kind of, a, I don't know, I think I may be go- dancing around your question a little bit, but that's how we've been using those symbols and the notion of free will or the subconscious or how much in control we are of our choices.
2: I think, no, I, I think that, that, that answers it pretty, pretty perfectly. <laughs> I, I like the idea of um, like you talk about putting it into this bigger soup. Um, I think that's another thing that makes the book you know like deliberately elliptical right um that it and i as i get older you know the more you know you mentioned um blue velvet earlier and of course you know i'm a big david lynch fan but that's only something that's happened to me as i've gotten older when i was younger i really rejected lynch's work because it was too difficult too dark too weird too hard to hang on to. Like, I remember Sergio and I getting the DVDs of Net, uh Twin Peaks from yeah. Netflix, and we gave up pretty early in season two because we just couldn't hang with it. And now, you know, that entire run, granted season two has some really big weak spots, but that's when Lynch isn't there, right? That's, um, but right. now like, I just love any sort of art that can bring me, again, that dreamlike state, that sense of, I remember just a year or two seeing um, Mulholland drive for the first time. And by the time you get to the scene in the theater, you know, where they're watching the the show on the stage with the red curtain and everything, just being like, Holy shit, this is amazing. I have no idea what I'm looking at, but like, <laughs> um, Like but, Homer Simpson. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but feel it like you can feel something going on there, even if you're not entirely sure what it is. And it hints at how much, I think what, to me is so exciting about horror fiction and why weird fiction in particular um uh appeals to me is that it can give you that sense of a much bigger stranger weirder more unknowable world um than you know than you could possibly conceive of and and it can give you a glimpse into that abyss I guess um so I I I think you're on to something with that with the with the tarot and the um you know, and, and um, the, the soup, uh, but, but also, you know, we talked about like sort of talking about the ending. Um, so what, what do, we, I, I hadn't really thought about that, about, um, about Harvey actually does end up making an independent decision even after he's rejected like his recovery, so to speak, and re-embraced his madness.
1: I mean, especially now, you know, um, someone will say, oh, have you seen this TV show? Like, no, I've wanted to, I've, you know, I've been meaning to, I just, you know, there's so much other shit to watch and, you know, and so, um, and I kind of look at that, you know, in, in Harvey's case, he has, he has these tarot cards. He has all these choices when really he, he wants to be binary. He wants yes or no. He doesn't want a b c or d he doesn't want you know the the buffet he wants black and white and once he's given that back he he still presents you know he's not you know beholden to it he still presents uh, some agency and even when like you said he he the it's scar side up he says like oh it's he lives he gets to go which i thought you know was was really interesting um An interesting examination of that character that I really hadn't um seen before or since really
2: yeah there there tends to be a very standard kind of um portrayal of Harvey Dent and the Two-Face character like a a sort of a standard you know kind of like how there's a standard Joker uh but although we've seen a lot more riffs on Joker than we have on Two-Face so um I agree. I've read a lot of Batman comics, but I've never read anything that quite uh, hit the same note <laughs> uh, on any level, but, es- but especially on Two-Face. Um, what do you guys make of that decision though? Like the, the why of it? I like, I, I, you know, if we're in agreement, yeah, that he's made a decision, which sort of almost shows that, you know, he has made progress Um but at the same time why would he lie about it why does he choose to let batman go like i I, i'm still not really sure i've got some ideas but i i I don't know for certain i was kind of curious what you guys thought
0: i wondered if it was because batman defends him at the very beginning that the the way Harvey Dent is treated by Joker, he's almost like this gimp character. He's sitting under the table, he's in his own feces or he's peed himself or whatever. It's just pathetic and lowly. And the fact that he's sort of, Batman's kind of defending him against the psychiatrist and saying, look what you've done to him. And I wondered if that had kind of stuck there or if there, it's almost like maybe Harvey Dent is a reversal of Batman too. I was thinking about this today earlier, so it's not fully formed, but this idea that if Batman is not too different from the Joker, the other psychotic damaged people in there, maybe Harvey Dent as a former man of the law, it, it, it is not just a madman. He's not just a criminal. He there, that part is still with him. And that part is connected to the part of Batman that, that is the lawman. I don't know. So I was just, I, I've just been thinking about that a lot today because for the, the ending really hit me today, <laughs> but, yeah. but that was just something I just latched onto. And I thought this is really great. There's just so much in this book. It rewards every time I read it.
1: I mean, it yeah, I, I really like that idea that, you know, it sort of harkens back to the the identity that he, that Harvey Dent used to have as a, as, you know, as a man of the law, as an attorney, you know, maybe, and, perhaps like it it humanizes like he acts as sort of like like the representative for the patients at arkham asylum and it humanizes them you know this act of mercy even as far gone as as two faces he can still be compassionate and kind and merciful and which is sort of an idea and again like this is just and this is what i this is kind of this is what i love about having these conversations because you know, we're, we're talking and you, you say something and that like, that's a really good idea. Like, I wonder about this. But so this idea also is not fully formed, but, you know, it kind of, it goes back to Jeremiah Arkham's story about, you know, um, I can't remember the name, but the, the man who ends up killing his family and how he uh, continues working with him, hoping that, you know, that he, and hoping that he can be of some assistance to him, that he can, you know, more like cure him, but help him of his mental illness. So like, you know, maybe it's just like the idea that there's there's always, you know, you're, you're, you're never too far gone.
2: I think I would agree with that, at least to some degree, because I mean, th- so much of the rest of the book is hallucinatory or dream imagery. It's the most human moment you see any of the inmates actually have, um, you know, because they are presented as sort of dreamlike archetypes for the most part. And then suddenly you have this very human, um, moment that, that feels more of a piece with a different sort of, uh, world, a different story. Um, I, I also was thinking, you know, I, I, I read and reread the last few pages of the book over and over again, uh, over the weekend while I was preparing for this, trying to make sense of, you know, what Batman says about how, um, you know, he's stronger than them, stronger than this place. He has to show them. And then, um, doctor the doctor says that's insane and he goes exactly arkham was right sometimes it's only madness that makes us what we are so i guess in a way he's also offering harvey back the crutch that's holding him together um because like you said crystal he's defending him at the beginning you know um like even as much as damage as that um neurosis or psychosis has done it's also the thing like holding together what sanity he does have, you know, it's how he makes sense of the world. And so Batman handing that back is also accepting, like, I have to sort of hang on to all of my kinks, fetishes, whatever you want to call it, you know, my uh, obsessions in order to stay me. Otherwise, I'm just going to shatter.
0: That's a good point. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, but I, I I didn't put that together until just now. <laughs> like
0: again, no. as we're sort of like
2: <laughs> talking about it, that wasn't something I came to it prepared with. I was thinking about it and thinking about it, and I was like, "How how's this work?" <laughs> until
0: was well, uh, and what, to- when you were talking, um, Sean, I was just thinking about the beginning when Doctor Ruthie is that famous passage where he's saying she says, "Well, maybe the Joker isn't insane. Maybe he's super sane, and he's working on this higher level because of this like." crazy postmodern uber violent world we live in. He recognizes the chaos we're in and he just decides just to go with it. And of course Batman says we'll, you know, tell tell that to his victims. So I wonder if what you, when you were talking I was thinking about that. I wonder if that's kind of a weird reversal of that. It still says yes. I don't know. <laughs> it's not trying to justify insanity like Dr. Ruthie was, but it's not rejecting it. Either it's sort of—is that what you're trying to say there, Sean? With that, is to still still embracing it because yeah. it's you?
2: Yeah, sort of. I guess uh, leaning into who you actually are and taking ownership of that instead of uh, tearing everything down to rebuild. Understanding that sometimes your illusions are all you have, you know, or or these these coping mechanisms that you've put in place to help you survive, um, which the Joker super sanity is presented as a very advanced uh, coping mechanism, which is such a Morrison idea. And I love it so much. Um, But, the, but yeah, that, that we all sort of have these things and some of them are more explicit than others. And of course, in dreams, you have the chance to sort of confront that, Uh, as both text and subtext of your daily life, you know, um, or at least in this dreamlike sort of place where symbol can become real and, you know, doesn't operate at that lower level. It becomes as much a part of the world as every, you know, the rest of the narrative. I I don't know if I'm making sense uh, or not
0: here. But dreams, um, and I think I missed this in the past and I might have read this in Super God's where Morrison says you can read this story actually as a dream in like Batman has this dream or this nightmare and that it's not an incident that actually happens. And I think that's really cool to think about that intention with what Sergio, you were talking about, about how there's a, the the, the premise for this is actually really realistic, but the hostage Mm -hmm. negotiation. So I just, but I had never really looked at this totally like it might not even be real.
1: Yeah, because, because there, there are some, like there's a, a panel where Batman stabs himself through the hand.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And to me, that was a little jarring because I'm like, that seems unrealistic. He also and,
2: kicks a man in a wheelchair down the stairs.
1: <laughs> and so and it was like, but I was like, that, yeah, that's some like some of this stuff sort of doesn't seem real so like the idea that this is one of those dreams that you know everything is very realistic but there's just a few things a few tells is is pretty interesting um but no like sean i like the idea that uh harvey's decision at the end is really the only moment of humanity in the entire book because even uh dr ruth even like you know she's presented as this person who who is very serious about her job and wants, wants to help these people. But at the same time, like she's very like cold and calculated about it. She's like, well, sometimes like, like you said, Chris, like you have to tear it down to, to build it back up. There's not really a whole lot of compassion there. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting that two face might be like the point of like humanity in the, in this book.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And she ends up uh, killing at the end too. And even Batman who is supposedly never killing, you know, anybody or okay with anybody killing anybody says he got what he deserved after Ruth kills Cavendish. Um, and you know, that also sort of, um, you know, that idea of like, there's something almost predatory about the doctors in this book and the way that they sort of their fascinations, you know, uh, and experiments on these people who are violent offenders, who are also probably not, you know, mentally, um, stable or definitely aren't mentally stable. Um, like Arkham sort of, you know, turns the place into a little bit of a playhouse once he loses his mind, you know, he'll actually, he actually kills the man who killed his family and writes it off as an accident. And, you know, um, so like the idea being that the patients, the insane, are actually the ones who are understanding things maybe a little bit better, or seeing at least this version of the world more clearly than um, you know the people protecting it. And that's sort of maybe the lesson Batman is learning because at the end, you know, the Joker's like, "We are free. You're the one who has to go back out there and be stuck." You know, we'll we'll keep it warm for you if you decide to come home, um, basically. Um, so yeah, I, I think the, the, the text definitely sort of supports that, um, that reading of the, not straight villains, but definitely not casting them in terms of uh, the light of healers, actual healers.
0: Well, and when we, when we last talked about this book in our class, we really put it in terms of power dynamics that, that became something that just thematically and organically emerged out of this particular class was the Gothic and power who, who has power, who doesn't have power, how people who seem like they don't have power can top from below and grab that power. And so by the time we got to this, cause this was a book that was right at the, really at the end of the semester, people were all over that about who has the power and how the power shifts throughout this story. And so the doctors are the ones in control and they even decide to stay inside and not walk out with the other people who were free. They make that choice to stay inside, but it's almost from a point of hubris. That's that's yeah.
1: how I that's how I saw it as, like you know, we we have to stay here. Like our, our, our uh, you know our our minds are needed here. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, well, it's sort of you know Sergio and I just wrapped up an arc on Alien, right? And the sort of the running theme in almost every Alien story is that most of the characters don't take the threat seriously. So you've almost, and and that also is a running theme in Batman stories when it comes to the Joker. There are all these doctors who think they can cure him or whatever. I mean, there's even, uh, you know, Harley Quinn's origin story is she was his doctor, you know, and instead of her curing him, he drove her insane. You know, I, I don't know if that's the current canon, but I know that was how it worked at one point. Um, so I, I think that there's, yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it's it's an interesting dynamic to look at
0: i had just read um several months ago harleen and i I don't remember the author or the artist of it but it's a recent harley quinn story and it is wonderful and it does kind of lean into that idea but it also really explores her character in a much more interesting way than they've been able to do um because i know harley quinn can sometimes be a problematic character yes people and um they they really are unafraid of dealing with that in that particular book so that's a that's my recommendation for a great batman story it doesn't really have batman in it
2: (laughs) i mean one of the things i think you know uh when i started sort of seriously collecting comic books uh, as a teenager most of what i was buying was in the batman family like there there's it's a very rich world like uh, even when you take Batman out of it, just those there are so many interesting characters. Like it's such a potent to use your word again soup of <laughs> archetypes and imagery that that really I don't think is repeated for any other single superhero. Maybe Spider Man comes closest, but um, you know without the insanity angle. But in terms of just interesting villains um, and having a lot of them, um, so. Uh, it looks like it was written and uh, illustrated by this, by one person. Uh, I don't know that I'm going to pronounce their name correctly, though. It looks like S- Stepan Sejic, I think.
0: Yes. Yes. And I think you might be close to the pronunciation because that was when I looked up the pronunciation for and thought, I'm going to get this wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's well, you- a
0: beautiful book. It's great.
1: Well, in addition to Harleen, are there any other books that you would recommend that kind of either have the same uh feel or the same enjoyment level as arkham asylum
0: i enjoyed lock and key uh about i read fantastic the the ran the run of that uh i guess last year Mm -hmm. um i just got for a new kind of gothic monsters class i'm gonna be teaching i just got victor laval's destroyer so i'm very excited about that book um i've been going back and looking at a lot of older alan moore um I don't know how I got there I've am I'm, I'm do, been doing a lot of research actually on Superman and somehow I came across an Alan Moore story and I'm not gonna be able to remember the title but it was a crossover with Superman and the Swamp Thing and I know Andy loves the Swamp Thing so that's been kind of a, <laughs> a new thing I've been looking at there's like three or four Superman stories in the 80s that Alan Moore did that are just I love they're great.
2: Yeah, I think that's one of the only Alan Moore Superman stories I haven't read because I think it's a little deeper in the run. I've only read some of the early issues. So that's something for me to look forward to. And I think Alan Moore, um, as much as Morrison, uh, you know, there's definitely a rivalry there, um, or at least Morrison sees it as a rivalry. Moore acts like he's never heard of the guy every time he comes up in interviews, which is
1: pretty typical for Alan Moore. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's on brand for his character, yeah. for
2: sure. <laughs> um but yeah he's got a lot of um he's he's actually done some weird fiction stuff um with the courtyard and uh providence which are um i don't know that i'd necessarily recommend them because they're you know, Alan Moore stories tend to have a lot of sexual violence in them, uh, yeah. at least his non-Superman <laughs> work. Uh, and this one, uh, these stories are no different than that. And also, uh, he doesn't shy away from sort of the implicit or at times explicit racism of uh, Lovecraft stuff. So it's uh, just just in terms of stuff that's sort of in that same vein, but I would send out with a caution label for anybody you know like know what you're getting into before you buy it like it's uh more explicitly upsetting than anything in Arkham Asylum I would
0: say um, and that's when that's a lot of times how I deal with um Lovecraft because I've a big Lovecraft fan band from the way back but teaching it now I think it needs to be taught in kind of an interesting texture or tension or contrast and so speaking of Victor Laval we'll we'll read the Ballad of Black Tom and then we'll read it right next to some Lovecraft short stories or we'll talk about Lovecraft country in relation to the fiction so all these authors who are sort of taking that back but that's a little bit of a side
2: no, no, Well, I mean, as somebody who wrote a uh, Lovecraftian book and wishes he had put a little bit more of that tension in his own work, uh, I've, I've been very gratified to see how other writers have been handling that, how other artists, especially from uh, tr- historically underrepresented groups, have really been able to um, take that narrative back and and make it do new and interesting things that it wasn't doing before while still keeping what was great about it, you know? <laughs> right
1: i mean the the ideas are fantastic it's just that lovecraft's execution is more often than not problematic so like i said keeping those ideas but doing something like you said new and interesting uh is really like what's i i feel what's kept like i guess the ip more or less uh as popular as it has been otherwise you know it would have been like oh this is the ramblings of a early 20th century race is like, screw that. Right. Yeah.
2: He, um, yeah, he, he did some really interesting stuff uh, in addition to being sort of an Olympic level racist, (laughs) Um.
1: which is, you know, which is uh, an idea that we've come to several times now um, in over several different topics and episodes is the idea that, you know, you, you can appreciate the good while also, you know, condemning the bad. You know, you don't have to always say like, you know, this person said this or did this. We will no longer value any of their artistic work, you know, and, you know, and it's sort of a a tightrope to walk sometimes because like, at what point do you say like, okay, like there's no justification anymore. Like you've, you've done too much, you know, we really shouldn't be examining or analyzing your work. But, you know, like I feel that if people who if marginalized groups that the thoughts of that narrative, exactly that if they're, if they're willing to take it and mold it into something new and something better then by all means, like let's allow them.
2: I, I, I agree. Um, and one of my benchmarks, I don't know if this will make it in the show or not, um, for whether to continue to support a certain artist is whether they're alive or not. So Lovecraft, luckily for us, has been dead almost a 100 years. So um, he can't benefit from any of this. You know, it's not like, um, you know, certain other beloved creators who've kind of been outed in the last few years as real creeps, um, where there there's a decision of like, okay, like, if I keep, you know, watching this or reading this, what am I actually giving money to? And then having to, you know, that's a more uh, morally complicated question. Uh, uh, It's a good conversation to have. It's just, I don't know what all the answers are.
1: Um, Uh, Well, I think that kind of wraps it up unless you have any other questions, Sean.
2: No, no, I think, I think we covered the, the, the brunt of uh, what I had in mind.
1: And not to, not to say that, you know, like I, I feel this conversation has, has ended because we could probably continue talking about this for hours on end, but you know, we all have lives to get, to get back to. <laughs> right. We can't just sit around talking about Batman all night. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> uh.
0: No, this was, this was a wonderful conversation. I'm so excited that you asked me to do this and that I had an opportunity to talk to y'all about it because I think this is just a, a beautiful book, just a wonderful book. It's, it's, such this little standalone gem in morrison's body of work but also as a gothic text or as as an example of psychological realism i've seen i've seen it put in that category which i think is really interesting um but i was just excited to come and talk to you all about it thank you thank Thank you you yeah thank you for coming
1: on absolutely
2: we'd love to have you back next time we've got something that intersects with uh you know with with your pet
0: interests
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, like I like I said I I could have we we could sit here and talk about Batman and especially Batman Arkham Asylum for hours on end, but we just simply don't have the time. To, to quote the great Jesse Spano, there's never any time. It
2: really isn't. She encapsulated she predicted that that like was so prescient as we w- headed into the 21st century when we are all perpetually busy all the time <laughs> and perpetually exhausted. Saved by the Bell was so far ahead of its time. And stay tuned for that, Art. Uh,
1: yeah, we've definitely got a multi-part Saved by the Bell art coming up. Uh, what's crazy about that is like, I, I think about it now, and I'm like, that chick was on fucking caffeine pills. <laughs> like that, she wasn't doing drugs. She was fucking taking caffeine. She pills. was on no dose <laughs> Yeah, she was like taking five hour energies. Um, but yeah, so but yeah, I at Arkham Asylum. I feel it's one of those. Even the combination of text and image, I feel is better as a suits as a better example. If you're trying to convince someone that comic books can be art, this is what you give them. You know, this is an example of what you give them, even above something like uh, like Watchmen, because as beautiful as Watchmen looks, it still looks like a comic book.
2: Yes, yeah, the Dave Gibbons art is very much. um, I mean, it's amazing, but it is in the. It's advancing. That mold of art, whereas Arkham Asylum is doing something completely different.
1: But let's go ahead and jump into uh, JLA. Let's, uh, yeah. this was uh, about six or seven years later that Grant Morrison. Which is sort of nuts that, as popular commercially as Arkham Asylum was, it took that much longer to to get Grant Morrison on a on a you know a triple A title.
2: Yeah. um, I think after Arkham was a big success, they, if I remember correctly from their book, and also there's a documentary called Talking with Gods, which I would recommend for anybody who's a fan, uh, uh, came out a few years ago. I think you can get it for like five bucks on Amazon. But um, after Arkham did so well, they sort of were flush with cash for a while and that's when they started you know traveling the world and um trying you know hallucinogenics and drinking like before that they were straight edge you know and so they really um took some time to like try and figure themselves out and uh i think they were still
1: late 20s early 30s yeah and yeah like you said like and coming from a background they and it, I mean, I know, I'm sure you you know this better having read their autobiography. Um, is that I mean, does that is that is that, uh, pr- is that a you know proper term for super gods? I'd say, or is it more like a memoir? It's
2: sort of a yeah, it's a memoir slash history slash analysis of so it's like a history of superheroes that also includes a memoir like as it so it starts in the 30s with superman they they sort of dip in and start telling stories chronologically within the history of the superhero about like oh yeah this was my first flash comic or this is you know me watching the batman cartoon or not cartoon the adam west batman on our little black and white tv in scotland and you know here's when i started working in comics and all of that so i it's it's a memoir slash History is what I'd call it, sort of a hybrid book, and I think that's part of what I like about it so much.
1: Well, like you said, like starting hit them starting off in comics. Uh, from what I've read, and like I said, I don't know if it's if this makes its way into Super Gods, but they were just sort of you know writing like little like anthology stories for 2000 AD and Warrior, and like like those like anthology sort of sets that that were prevalent in the UK at the time. And sort of just scraping by a living, like doing what they loved and doing what they wanted to do, but not really making a whole lot of money doing it. And so, yeah, it makes sense that if, you know, if you were to get going to win, of cash, you'd go around and travel the world and do the things you've always wanted to do, but couldn't afford to.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, they. Yeah, they I, Morrison does say they were working for like warrior or near myths or you know and getting paid like 10 pounds per story or something like not enough to live on like they were on the dole uh until you know until arkham well maybe until animal man which came before arkham asylum but arkham asylum was a was a like a, a new york times bestseller it wasn't just like something comics fans were reading it was the batman original graphic novel that hit six months after the michael keaton tim burton movie hit and so it was a massive success and they yeah had all this money they were single no kids you know um so yeah they they i think they came back to comics starting with spawn and this was early 90s image was um you know kind of at its at at its original peak of, of popularity and stuff. And Todd McFarlane was paying insane amounts of money to get creators like Alan Moore or Grant Morrison or Frank Miller to write an arc. Um, and I think Morrison said, even as of 2011, that was still the most money per issue that they had been paid for, um, writing comic books, (laughs)
1: Well, also around this time, they, they had also started work on The Invisibles, which is, I, I feel like operates as their magnum opus, which we will be discussing in the next episode. Uh, you know, it's a 60 issue run, creator-owned, published by DC Vertigo. And it, like, I feel like sort of examines every, everything that Grant Morrison is interested in and wants to, I guess, wants to examine through the medium. Whereas like Doom Patrol and Animal Man, speaking of those, uh, those earlier works to examine bits and pieces or even like JLA and X-Men.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And, um, I think that they, you know, the, the, the money in writing for comics, like, and it may be different now, but at least at that point, like, if you wanted to make a living writing comic books, um, superheroes were the place to do it. So, um, you know, they, uh, apparently originally Morrison asked, put together a proposal for the Teen Titans and they were like, no, we've already assigned that to somebody else, but Justice League's not doing anything, and like, can you imagine? We get the 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 Morrison Teen Titans instead of JLA. It's like, it's like asking for twenty, and they're like, no, you can't have twenty. Here's a <laughs> hundred.
1: Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, um. So so JLA starts off the first story arc is called New World Order, and the base and the basic synopsis is these uh, alien superheroes show up on Earth and promise to to solve every problem like we're here to you know save the planet uh they turn the sahara into this like fertile uh lush fertile yeah lush like you know agricultural uh land for growing crops so essentially um cure world hunger doing that and just have these in there you know they have a good look to them and they you know the public quickly buys into them whereas you know the JLA has been around for however long and that's that's a weird thing about comic books is like how long it's like in in universe how long has Superman been around is it five years ten years it's certainly not a, almost 100 right years. right
2: I and I think that's sort of it's kind of like the the same problem you get with the James Bond movies where like you get to a movie like Skyfall and it's like there's definitely a lot of history at play but also technically in universe this bond has only been a double O for like five or six years (laughs) but but still that movie brings in the weight of the previous like 50 years of movies um and I I think that superhero comics kind of do the same thing where like like yeah he's only been Superman 10 years wink you know but like (laughs) collectively he's been part of our public you know unconscious or conscious for like 70 years at this point or at that point or 60 years i guess um
1: and- but yeah so they, they've been around a minute and like haven't really uh i mean they keep the world you know quote unquote safe but they haven't they, we still have all these problems we still have all these uh, you know societal issues uh and that they haven't solved and so these uh aliens show up and like we're going to do just that uh while we're doing that though we're also going to start you know publicly executing criminals and because of the aforementioned good deeds the public sort of lets that slide and almost sort of like well you know that's what superman and batman and wonder woman should have been doing anyway like goddamn, like like why we just let them uh you know live so they can come back out and you know try to block out the sun again,
2: terrorize us again. Like Superman, why don't you stop this from happening? Um, Sort of a mob justice thing, basically.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so it turns out that these uh, these alien superheroes are actually uh, white Martians uh, in disguise the uh, white martians being like the evil martians whereas john jones is a green martian and he's one of the good guys
2: right the the green martians i think in the the dc universe were pacifists artists scientists and the white martians were
1: the the humanities uh, the humanities majors exactly. and the english majors <laughs> of of mars the hard
2: science uh <laughs> people of Mars were the white Martians. No, I think they were the soldiers. Um, They sort of end up borrowing that same idea in um, Man of Steel where like, you know, basically Jor-El was bred to be a scientist and Zod was bred to be a soldier. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, they're white Martians.
1: And, but yeah, they're I mean very much in that, like, soldier sort of like, let's go out and and conquer mentality. Uh, And they, they get found out Pretty much through Batman and like that the one recurring theme in Morrison's JLA run is just how goddamn clever Batman is in figuring <laughs> out almost everything.
2: Yeah. And just such a badass about it too. Like there's there's that diehard callback moment where like uh one of the hyper clan comes looking for another and finds him tied up with like the the sign posted to him saying like I know your secret.
1: Yeah. Um like that—that's definitely is like ho ho ho! I have a machine gun <laughs> okay. now too. Like moment.
2: And I'm I'm wondering, you know, I I don't know enough about comic books at the time, but I'm there. There has sort of evolved the sort of bat god uh, archetype of Batman, where like he is always one step ahead of everything. He's never caught flat footed. He's you know. And I'm wondering if that actually kind of started here with Morrison's portrayal of him, um, because it it's not something I really remember from the Dennis O'Neill-led uh, Bat books from the early 90s. You know, when they were doing Nightfall and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So I'd be curious. Somebody who knows more about comic books can <laughs> that uh, can let us know if that if, if that's the case. That's just and I only have anecdotal evidence to support it. So. Um, but yeah, that, that is one of the highlights of the, um, the justice league run, um, or this JLA run, I guess, is getting to see these heroes being total badasses, like doing what they do best. Um, you know, so, and I, I think that, um, this arc does a really good job of that, um, right out of the gate of sort of like splitting the, the team into different sub teams and giving them opportunities to sort of show off their different powers. Like Aquaman actually reaches into like the cortex or something into the brain of one of the, the hyper clan and like shorts him out, gives him a seizure. Um, you know, like,
1: yeah, because it's somehow like tied to like marine biology, marine life. Yeah.
2: Um, but stuff like that, like this, it was stuff that I had never seen in a comic book before, like these really interesting different ways of using powers that didn't feel like they were breaking the rules, but um, I'd never seen before. And it's like, oh, okay, I guess Aquaman kind of is a badass and not just a joke,
1: you know? That <laughs> doesn't just talk to tuna fish. right? Uh, one of the things that was interesting to me, especially in this, uh, this storyline is, so the the Martians have sort of um, like telepathic abilities and can kind of use mind control. And that's exactly what they use to sway like the public opinion toward them and away from the JLA. And I guess like to even toward their more like, I guess uh, like extreme behavior, like, like publicly executing criminals in the street. And I felt like, I, I felt that that entire subplot could have been lifted out. And it perfectly describes human nature that, you know, we, we are very much a group of uh, a collective that wants easy solutions to difficult problems. And as long as you're willing to provide those, we'll kind of go along with everything else. Sort of like, I mean, and like with, you know, with, with Amazon, you know, these, this is, this is a company that provides the, provide the service. You know, we can get, something you know we can order a book and it'll be here tomorrow like a hard copy a physical copy of a book and it'll be here tomorrow or a physical copy of whatever and it'll be here tomorrow in two days whatever it may be but at the same time like by doing that we're supporting a company that has been accused of uh you know exploiting its workers right but and so and everybody but,
2: agrees most people agree that's bad but most of us still haven't stopped using amazon either
1: exactly and like i said so to me like I feel like that's something that maybe I don't know. And like I said, I don't want to tell tales out of school or speak out of turn. Might have been something that you know was added in later, like because reading reading Grant Morrison's X Men run, which is like cynical and dark as fuck. I feel, and maybe maybe this was just their evolution as a writer. Maybe in nineteen ninety six. He believed mind control would be a thing that would be necessary to sway public opinion one way or the other. Whereas, you know, by the early 2000s, maybe it's something that they stopped believing, maybe it's something that they felt wouldn't be necessary. Because I feel that that story told in their new X Men run would not have had the mind control subplot at all. I
2: I would agree with that. Uh, I I think. Something Morrison talks about a lot in Super Gods is the power of the stories that we tell as a culture, like that essentially narrative can be weaponized. So at that point, so I I actually want to read a little bit from Super Gods where they talk about sort of their mindset about writing the book. So they they write, there would be no obtrusive postmodern tricks in JLA, just unadulterated, G whiz, unadorned sci-fi myths in comic form, giving back to the superheroes the respect and dignity a decade of realism and harsh critique had stripped away. So one of the things Morrison was really against was this idea of the, the, the Alan Moore, you know, this is let's bring superheroes. Let's drag them down into the gutter with us, um, you know, and make them, uh, as fallible as we are. And, you know, Morrison was like the, what I like about superheroes is that they aren't real. You know, we should be trying yeah. to be more like them rather than vice versa.
1: They're the ideal.
2: Exactly. And they, uh, one more little snippet here. Um, the wounded sneering reject heroes of Doom Patrol had been easy for me to write, but the JLA crowbarred me into the mindset of the traditional DC American superhero, where I had to bend my head to think on their level. It turned out to be powerful fun. By taking the characters in their world at face value, I hope to show how the superheroes pointed to something great and inevitable in us all. We've always known we'd eventually be called upon to open our shirts and save the day. And the superhero was a crude, hopeful attempt to talk about how we all might feel on that day of great power and great responsibility. So I I, I feel like there's a deliberate choice to
1: not go dark and cynical and deconstructionist.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and to extend a little bit of the benefit of the doubt to humanity in general, not just to the superheroes, which, you know, I, I, would agree, like you don't actually need the mind control for that plot to work, but I'm, I'm sort of happy that in that world, it presupposes that if people find out they've been duped by bad guys, then they would fight back. Um, you know, that's such a, an optimistic thing to think, um, especially here in the early 21st century, you know, where things are, pretty you know the, the the general mood in the culture is pretty funereal I feel like right now you know maybe maybe that's just me maybe I'm becoming a nihilist in my old age I don't know maybe everybody's <laughs> actually super hopeful and I'm I'm just sitting alone in my apartment like it's all gonna fucking
1: end soon so it's like it's a sort of a sort of back to basics approach while also um, utilizing like you know the, the modern storytelling techniques like being able to you know, if you were to read a, a Superman comic from the 30s or 40s they would be like oh this is goddamn fucking terrible <laughs> like this isn't very good at all you can appreciate it for what it is but it's you can't enjoy it like having you know that after you know in the, in the in this day and age uh like as you know as a as a story because it's just so markedly different the the you know the sensibilities were so you know between now and then are so stark and so you're able to have that sort of like, like 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 Morrison wrote that sort of gee whiz like is it a bird is it plane it's Superman, like idea, but with today's sensibilities.
2: Exactly, and that's part of what made that book I think such a joy to read was that it was genuinely fun. Like you know, it, it, coming from a time you know again, like we were coming of age during the, you know, the, or not coming of age, we were starting to read comics in the, you know, the image age where like, you know, it's post-Watchmen, post-Dark Knight, everything's pretty grim. Like even Spider-Man was really dark for a while. Um, you know, so, so having sort of this genuinely fun, upbeat take, this reminder of like, this is what you should feel when you read this type of story. Um, was such a breath of fresh air that I I couldn't have articulated it at that age. I just knew I was having a really good time reading this book, you know, Um, and and that it's not, that it's trying to drag humanity up rather than superheroes down. You know what I mean? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, Um, for sure.
2: And I, I love that. And I think that's such a, what makes Morrison so special as a thinker and an artist is that ability to look at something. It's almost like, they, they can move up into the fifth dimension, you know, and sort of look at us on a flat plane that looks, you know, the 3d looks flat to them, uh, and can see things from different angles and bring a new take that somehow can also, at least in the case of JLA hit the, that popularity thing in just the right way. Like that, I think JLA might be the high watermark of just them balancing the weirdness and quirkiness with you know just just straightforward commercial pop um you know storytelling i you know I, I love i love their work and i love watching them get weirder you know as they uh get deeper into their career but um as far as like a book that i feel i feel like you could hand to just about you know you couldn't hand arkham asylum to any just about anybody but you could hand this book to most people uh, especially in the '90s when it was coming out, and you know, I think they could see the appeal.
1: No, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You give this comic book to uh, a an a, a, uh, an adult comic book fan, and they'll enjoy it. You give this comic book to a ten year old child who you know has passing knowledge of who Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman are because of movies or whatever, and they'd still enjoy it as well.
2: Yeah, it it doesn't get, the book also, one of the things I think is really genius about it is it doesn't get caught up in the personal lives of the heroes. Um, You know, they'll mention things in passing, like when Superman turns into a, a blue energy being or, you know, when Wonder Woman dies for a while and Hippolyta, you know, takes her place in the JLA. But most of those things are only mentioned in passing. And the book itself, you know, is pretty, the arcs do build on themselves eventually by the time you get to the final arc, World War Three, but mostly they can be enjoyed by themselves, one or two issues. Like in a vacuum. Yeah, and I think that was something I really appreciated too, because as a poor kid, I didn't have money to keep up with every X book or every Superman book or every Batman book. So like, I always felt like I was missing big chunks of the story, but here was a book where I could just read this. Yeah. And I got the entire story and it had all my favorite characters. And, you know, it, it, so it really was just like, this is, you know, widescreen G whiz storytelling um, that um, doesn't require a huge investment from the reader either. Like it gives more than it takes.
1: So we have the major beats of the, of Morrison's JLA run. You know, we've got new world order. His first, the first story arc uh, rock of ages, Uh, the Prometheus two-parter that introduces that character. Uh, There's a Starro two-parter that is a lot of fun that has Daniel from the Sandman. uh, Which is awesome. (laughs) Yeah, which is fantastic. And uh, another common theme is that sort of like that makes its way through Morrison's entire run is Kyle Rayner as Green Lantern, just sort of his, um, he's like second guessing himself and his you know, his self-esteem when comparing himself to, you know, how Jordan, the previous Green Lantern. And that like weaves its way all the way through that Starro two-parter where Daniel tells him like, you have something that Hal Jordan never had, which will make you better. And Kyle Rayner doesn't, can't fathom, like, what could I possibly have that, that Hal Jordan, he was so much better than me. What could I possibly have that he didn't? And Daniel tells him fear.
2: I love that scene.
1: Yeah. And what's great is like, I don't know that they ever focus on Kyle Rayner's insecurities, you know, other than in passing, like, you know, lines here and there, you know, one panel and in a couple of issues, there isn't sort of like this, you know, there isn't an issue where Superman sits Kyle down and says like, you know, like you're a good man, Kyle Rayner, like you're going to do great. Like, Oh, thanks. Supes. Uh, And but it just like sort of like you 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 still get that impression that he feels like he's in over his head. And and then by the end of it, there's a point where Connor Queen, Green Arrow, has taken over for his father. And he says, like, dude, like I I'm at my best, like on the street, like this whole intergalactic alien, like I'm on the fucking moon for goodness sake. Like this (laughs) isn't me. And Green Lantern tells him, like, no, like you, you, you've got this. You trust me, like you can do this because he knows that he's gone through that himself. Throughout these couple dozen issues,
2: that was another thing I loved about '90s DC that I think uh, Morrison and, and and Mark Wade also did a good job of is the the idea of the legacy hero. So in this JLA, you have Flash and Green Lantern, but they're not the Silver Age Flash and Green Lantern. You've got, you know, the, the at that point the Silver Age Flash Barry Allen had died in Crisis on Infinite Earths. You know, he sacrificed himself to literally save mm-hmm. the world. Um, he ran himself to death basically. And then Green Lantern had gone insane um, and threw himself into the sun. But but what's interesting is that Wally, I guess he'd been at it longer than Kyle because like, he seems to already be part of the club and to be relatively dismissive of Kyle. um, Like there's definitely a little bit of sibling rivalry happening, especially in that first arc. Um, I think they, they, they eventually start getting along a little bit better, but So I always found that that scene where Daniel is talking to Green Lantern and saying you will surpass him I think about that all the time and as much as I enjoyed the Jeff Johns run on Green Lantern where they brought Hal Jordan back I always felt like it was a little bit of a betrayal of that moment because I felt like kyle was my green lantern you know and i still like him better than hal um you know and i'm glad that they've kept him around they didn't kill him off you know he's i think he's still part of the core. he's just not the green lantern anymore um yeah so yeah i i really love that characterization that's my favorite one of my favorite things about the book and it pays off in world war three too whenever like the ring stops working for a while and he has to like go to the negative zone and get his head together and then he comes back you know a total badass so like it it does pay off too um in the final act of morrison's you know uh uh,
1: jla run yeah um yeah so i guess just to uh finish up the conversation on jla you know uh There's Rock of Ages, which is sort of like this, um, you know, time traveling, like prevent the horrible future from going on.
2: Brings in the new gods, dark side. Yeah.
1: yeah. Storyline, which I feel has uh, a sequel to World War Three, which is very similar. Uh, I feel like the sequel actually does it better than I think World War Three is a better story arc than Rock of Ages. I think the pacing's better. I think the characterization is better. Like you said, like like Kyle Rayner has that, that great moment where he kind of comes into his own. And uh, the one thing I do like about Rock of Ages is the Joker's involvement in it. And just because Morrison's Joker... Uh, not at all like the Joker from Arkham Asylum, <laughs> but still a lot of fun. Like you, know, you can tell that they have a lot of fun writing this character.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I um I would like a lot about Rock of Ages, but it feels very dark. It feels very um, fractured, you know, in a way that World War Three doesn't. World War Three has, like you said, it's got a momentum and an emotional core to it that Rock of Ages does not have. I think Rock of Ages is a more intellectual. Um, story whereas world war three is a big bleeding heart you know superhero epic um and one of the things i love most about world war three is that moment where all the human beings on earth you know it's sort of a nice um callback to the end of um new world order the first jla arc where the people of earth have to help the superheroes fight off the martians and that comes back again at the end Um, when all of humanity unlocks their superhero potential and they come to save Superman, which I think, uh, you know, it's cheesy as hell, but it just works. It's, you know, it, it's so in keeping with like the optimism and, and just, well, like you
1: said, it, it, instead of, you know, what was going on for so long in the eighties of like dragging the superhero down, dragging the God down to our level, we're elevating ourselves to their level.
2: And it happens quite literally there. And it's such a powerful image, you know, like the, I, I think it's Wonder Woman who says they wouldn't take no for an answer. They wanted to, you know, to help, to, to pay Superman back. And um, it was also, I think the first, another thing, I know, I know we're wrapping this up, but another thing is this was <laughs> the first comic I read where I felt like it nailed how I felt about Superman. Like the way that the other characters look at him and talk about him. As opposed to the way he looks and talks about himself like it brought him to that sort of legendary place where I feel like he should be and that the other even the other superheroes kind of like in, you know the Avengers how most of them cap
1: talk yeah talk about Captain America exactly,
2: um, and I think Morrison maybe gets Superman better than most writers. Uh, And, you know, we'll get into that more in the next episode. Well, no, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's,
1: yeah, that's one of the things, uh, you know, in, in episode two, like I previously said, we'll, we will be discussing the invisibles. We'll also be discussing Grant Morrison's uh, all-star Superman run. And like, yeah, I, I have a buddy who thinks Superman is, bland and boring and you can't tell a good story with that. Like if he's mean, like, how can you? Like you motherfucking can do anything. Like he like he's too powerful. Like you know, uh you got someone who's super fast. Well he's fast too. You got someone who's tiny, like, well he has X-ray vision and like you know like he's like has seemingly no flaws. And so to be able to write a character like that in a uh satisfying fashion, that's a it's a hard trick to pull off. And I think that Grant Morrison does it really well and um consistently well yeah and consistently well for that matter but yeah but last that scene that you're talking about where you know humanity like rises up to to save superman uh it reminds me a lot of that's the train scene in spider-man yes. 2 you where know where I Spider-Man, cry. yeah <laughs> oh my god that fucking scene um but yeah the one where you know spider-man like essentially passes out due to the pain and exhaustion of stopping a train and gets you know carried in like gets like lifted up and carried in his mask has come off and everyone sees his identity and they realize like there's a line like i mean he's just a kid he's like no older than my son and it's one of those rare examples that like you said like that scene reminds you that scene perfectly encapsulates how what you know how you feel about superman yeah and you know and like it's those scenes are so rare that that perfectly capture, like, how, uh, like, you know, what, what we feel, what, you know, the idea of a superhero, the idea of someone who is so much more than us, you know, physically, and yet uses that to, to, you know, to help us to, 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 to the betterment of mankind, and, and sacrifices to do so, like how that makes us feel like, you know, that, that idea that you know that very humbling and altruistic idea
2: yeah and in the case of spider-man 2 as well like that whole movie he's having the shit kicked out of him and over
1: and over and like like physically emotionally
2: financially like yeah uh nothing goes right for him it feels so thankless his powers aren't working you know he can't tell you know his best friend thinks he killed his dad you know his he can't tell his girl like you know the the girl he's in love with how he feels um and then this happens and you know you get that moment where the people on the train put themselves between him and Dr. Octopus you know um yeah even though they know like he can kill and all he does yeah and he, he just- like oh I
1: mean, he doesn't kill them but he like they're like, you're going to have to go through us. He's like, all right. Literally literally
2: smashes like... Into the but the of
1: fact it. that they're willing to do that, knowing that that is like the logical and more like the probable uh, outcome. Yeah. Like Grant Morrison's JLA run feels like a like big, wet, sloppy kiss to the superhero genre. And I mean, superhero in like, in the strictest of sense, like the, the, the long tights and, and underoos on the outside superhero yep. genre. 100%. And, um,
2: yeah, I will always be a booster for that book.
1: What doesn't feel like a, uh, a <laughs> kiss to the superhero genre is Grant Morrison's X-Men run, which follows like pretty much on the heels of the end of JLA. Yep.
2: I think their run on JLA ended in like 2000, maybe, or 2001. Or, and then a few months later, new X-Men started.
1: That was a huge get for Marvel. You essentially got... One of the biggest writers at DC, writing one of the biggest titles at DC, jumping over, and helming, you know, probably you know the flagship the, Marvel book, X Men. You know, this is right after the X Men movie had come out, and so X Men I think was at an all time high as far as popularity was concerned.
2: Yeah, and and Morrison comes in, and instead of back to basics. They take a different approach with the X-Men. like even even from the beginning, and I, I, I think the book sort of changed direction early on because of what was going on in the world. But even from the very beginning, like it's laying groundwork for a very different world for the mutants and their status quo moving forward. Like it was, you know right right from issue one, like they introduced you know the, the or 114, I guess was Morrison's first issue. Yeah. They introduce the extinction um, gene in humanity, basically. Like that, I think it's in that first issue. Where like, it's a definitely in the first
1: arc. Yeah, it's definitely the first story arc. Uh, uh, e is for extinction. They introduce the E gene, which uh, is like deeply encoded in the human genome, that uh, will essentially trigger, trigger um, extinction for for mankind, for for a Homo sapien. Um, but yeah, it's like it's it's everything that JLA wasn't it's very dark and very cynical and I don't know that I read them back to back when they came out but reading them back to back in preparation for this episode it was like it was, the differences were so stark and a bit jarring like it's it was incredible and that just that's a it's a it's a testament to like how talented Grant Morrison is as a writer that both these comic books were written by the same person.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll admit, you know, I followed the book for a while when it was coming out in the early two thousands, but I remember being dismayed early on because I thought it was going to be like the JLA And instead, it was very different. It was like you said; it's a starkly different um, take, you know. um
1: Well, just as an example, E for E is for Extinctions, the first story arc, and sort of like you said, lays a groundwork for what is to come in the next couple of years. In in this story arc, the mutant island of Genosha, which in in X Men, like I guess like mythos in X Men, the X Men universe, is an island that Magneto like started, like it's, it's for mutants. Like, you know, we're not say, I don't feel that mutant kind is safe anywhere else in the world. So we're going to separate ourselves and, and be on this island. And so we have an entire island of millions of mutants and it's decimated by, by Sentinel. It's, it's like, you know, raised to the ground by the, the newly introduced Cassandra Nova, it was then revealed to be professor X's in utero twin that professor X kills because he I guess realizes the threat she will present right
2: yeah because I guess he he already had his uh, brain powers in the womb I guess you know
1: um, sure yeah, <laughs> yeah. Th- that's fine <laughs> all right <laughs> I give like yeah you got a book with with uh, a Canadian motherfucker with metal claws. I can't die. He's like, sure. That, that works. Yeah. Too. Yeah.
2: Um, well, he's, he's an Omega level mutant. Right. So like he might've manifested like most mutations happen in puberty, but, but I guess for sure, maybe for him, it would happen sooner.
1: But yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of like, that's the, that's where Morrison starts is the like uh, near genocide, the near genocide of, of uh, the mutant race. And so just that in and of itself, and which is nuts to think because you brought this up right before we started recording that this first arc, especially this, uh, you know, 9 11 happened and like right after this arc started. Yeah. Th- right after Morrison's run on X Men started. And that, like you said, you were talking about, like it sort of uh, molded the, the rest of the run to like what, you know, what, what was going on in the world molded the rest of the run. But what's interesting is that this was definitely—I mean, it came, it came out beforehand, and it was definitely plotted way beforehand. Right. But yet the parallels are so intriguing because you have this uh, this act of terrorism in the comic book that is then uh, greeted that is that is then followed up by this goodwill toward you know the um,
2: the mutant community.
1: Yeah, toward the toward the affected. And so yeah, it's there's a line that says like you know the entertainment uh, industry is going to start changing the like the narrative and the the portrayals of mutant kind in films and in television, and it's it's so like it's it's interesting because that's like almost exactly what happened. Uh, I mean that that sort of goodwill that happened like post 9 right. 11. You know, where everyone was, you know, we trying to be kinder to each other. You know, Americans were trying to be kinder to each other because, you know, we've all we were all affected by by this by this tragedy, by this, by this act. You know, like as if you continue reading this the comic book, that if you continue reading New X-Men, or if you live through, you know the early two thousands. Yeah. Like that goodwill like evaporates very quickly.
2: So fast. Yeah
1: you know, I, th- I talked about like the sort of like mind control subplot in the first story arc of JLA and like that might've not been necessary. And then sort of this, and it's just, it's so amazing, like how on the pulse, you know, how, how well Grant Morrison understands human nature.
2: Yeah. It's a sad book. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think this is the first time and you can, you've read a lot more X-Men than I have, I think. Um, but I think this is the first time, like you get really truly ugly mutants like beak um like the 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 truly freakish looking like not even like cute in a cartoony sort of way like dupe from ecstatics but like like grotesque to look at like ugly john i think is the the mutant that they're hanging out with like that they've just rescued who cyclops mercy kills and like the first or second issue
1: yeah i I'm, i want to say you might be right like even like characters like the blob it's just like you know he's just a morbidly obese guy you know he's not like you know disgusting to look on as far as you know like beak looks you know like a weird chicken person <laughs> you know
2: like yeah they're not pleasant like, not to like look stylized
1: at, yeah. or aesthetically pleasing at all like it's kind of like if like what you would get if you like You know, in the fly, if you put a chicken in a
2: a teenage boy,
1: and in a machine, but then like you know through like a like a I don't know like a Mountain Dew inside of it
2: (laughs) (laughs) to to fuel it instead of the the time or the teleportation
1: fluid, exactly. And so, uh, but yeah, and like another example of like just of Morrison understanding human nature is uh, a few storylines in the Kid Omega storyline. You've got this kid. Who is at Xavier's Institute for Gifted Youngsters, which is another cool thing that Morrison did? Is that he, it felt like an actual school, like, yes, it as opposed to like a front for like a, a <laughs> X for X team for a superhero, like, hideout, for a,
2: right? For a paramilitary mutant organization, yeah,
1: for an NGO paramilitary uh <laughs> operation. Uh, it felt like an actual school that you know that that, that was for mutants for mutant children. You've got this kid, um, his name was Quentin and he has started going by Kid Omega. And what his storyline like I think like just perfectly mirrors like the like all that incel, like proud boy bullshit that's been going on the past few years. Like it's a kid who like isn't popular, kind of gets picked on.
2: He's got a crush on one of the Stepford cuckoos, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, has a crush on the girl that he can't get. Who like you know, and there's another kid who's like you know, good looking and popular, and, and this kid is everything that Quentin isn't, and he sort of, and Quentin sort of burrows into that anger, and you know, gets a uh, group of other like minded kids, and lash out in, in, in violence.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that they're already on kick by the time that they start the riot, aren't they?
1: Yeah, like, yeah. And, and kick is a is, a uh like a designer drug for mutants. mutants that's been introduced which plays into Morrison's entire run like as it continues on.
2: Yes, yeah. Um I agree I I really did like the idea of it as a school that the X-Men actually felt like teachers, especially uh Jean and Emma in particular um really felt like people running a school in addition to you know being part of the away team sometimes, you know, Jean, especially, I think doesn't, she spends most of her time in that run at the school, doesn't she? Like, whereas the others get to go out and have adventures a little bit more often, she's pretty much holding down the fort.
1: Well, it it kind of like plays into like, it's just like she's sort of feeling that archetype of like the stay at home mom while like, you know, Cyclops, while Scott Summers, her husband, and Emma Frost are out, you know, like he's like, you know, hanging out, you know, going on work trips with his secretary, you know, more or less, and which, you know, then evolves into the sort of emotional affair that they have emotional and like psychological, I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the closest real world analog is an emotional affair, but it's, it's, it's a telepathic thing where basically like, they're not actually having sex, but he's sharing, intimate details and talking to this other person who he is sexually interested yeah. in about the troubles in his marriage. Um, he comes to her because now to be fair, she's sort of manipulating him a little bit. Uh, like she's definitely trying to, you know, uh, guide the cow. The into wedge, the sh- yeah. And yeah, then the shoot, so to speak, uh, <laughs> like put, you know, for the slaughter. Um, but there's definitely because he comes to her because she's like, oh, yeah, I'm a marriage counselor. And he's like, oh, OK, well, then it's safe to talk to you. It's like which is either him justifying to himself or just showing how dumb he is about Yeah, either
1: things. like either he's completely naive or he's willfully naive. Like, you know, like, well, that's, you know, if, if anyone asks, that's the reason I'm talking to this. Like super foxy diamond lady,
2: right? Who is always talking about how she wants to have sex with me? Therapists do that, right?
1: Therapists do that. Uh, all my therapists have.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I paid oh, them. I paid them thirty bucks every time I saw them.
2: Oh, cyclops! Oh no. Uh,
1: um. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, and that again, that well, that whole storyline, like this sort of like, uh, like you know, uh, Scott, you know, more or less cheating on his wife. With Emma Frost um, like I said is the complete antithesis of what Morrison was doing in JLA like where you said like he was elevating you know he, he was keeping these these gods in their place in the pantheon above us and not dragging them down to our level like like this felt like like a soap opera in the best sense you know, like when Jean comes in and like find like, you know, that that shot of her like, yo know, what's going on here? You're <laughs> like, oh, shit, I can't wait for the next issue. Well, Scott's going to get his fucking shit kicked in. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, but no, like this felt like like a.
2: The characters are very human.
1: Absolutely. And it felt like a like a somewhat dysfunctional family at times, you know, with with the with the backdrop of, uh, you know tights and flights behind us.
2: Yeah, I absolutely. I I read this article and talking about how Cyclops and his journey is sort of the underlying theme almost of the entire new X-Men run that Morrison does because he's come back from the dead and he's sort of clinging to this old way of being that is not working for him anymore. Like he doesn't know how to talk to his wife. He doesn't feel connected to, her. he doesn't feel like himself, but he also refuses to move forward and just be honest with himself or his wife or anybody else. And I think he's confused. I, I don't think, but, but I think there is some emotional dishonesty because he doesn't want to admit that there's something wrong because, you know, he and Gene are soulmates and he's, you know, they've, they've battled death together. And, um, you know, so like that story feels like it should be settled to him and it's not. Um, and that's sort of the X-Men Morrison sort of pushing them forward too, like changing the uniforms, changing them from superheroes into a rescue organization that like humanitarian aid, essentially like giving them the, the black, you know leather motorcycle outfits instead of the the tights uh although white queen still dresses in clothes that would not function in the real world but again (laughs) comic books comics as somebody who went through uh, uh, this may be a little tmi as somebody who went through the end of a marriage where basically both parties stopped really talking to each other being honest or didn't know how to be because they were trying so hard to stay married um as much as I hate, you know, Cyclops was always my favorite X-Man. So, and I always rooted for him and Gene. So like seeing that was another reason I think I put down the run early is like, I don't want to watch Cyclops cheat on his wife. And I'm still not glad that it <laughs> happened, but um, I feel like the way that it plays out is very human and very forgiving. You know what I mean? Like it, Yeah. it's, allowed to be more than one thing it it allows for complexity and in a way that justice league had plot complexity this book has character complexity um and i think i wasn't ready for that in 2001 2002 but i read the whole run for the first time in prep for this episode and i i couldn't put it down i think it's fantastic it's dark And
1: no, yeah, I remember like we were discussing like what issues to read and
2: because I was worried I wouldn't be able to do it all.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, well, the entirety of both runs consists of like about, you know, 75 to 85 issues, like about 40 on each. Right. Uh, I was like, I don't know if we're, I don't know if I have the time for that. And then that was like maybe Tuesday. It's like, all right, well, let's, let's parse out some, uh, Uh, Let's parse out some of the story, like the like the high notes to like really like focus on, hone in on, and like get the ideas from that. And you're like on a Thursday night, like, "Hey, I started X uh, Morrison's X Men run. It's pretty good." And then by like Saturday morning, you're like, "Yeah, I read the whole thing. It's fucking amazing." (laughs) And I'm like, "Well, I guess that solves that problem. I guess you do have the fucking time, Sean."
2: It's well, you know, I it's been a it's been a really busy time, but also I think that speaks to
1: how good it is right
2: because it didn't feel like work like a lot of times like rereading the jla stuff because i've read it so many times i know some of those panels some of those lines some of those scenes by heart was a little bit more work whereas this was like you know past the first maybe 10 issues or so was all virgin territory for me um and it didn't feel like work it was just like this is what i want to do with my time this isn't just me prepping and doing homework this is like this is genuine pleasure that I'm having, uh, reading this book. Uh, another thing we talked about before recording that I love about this book is just like JLA. It can be read in isolation. It helps if you know a little bit about the X-Men beforehand, but it doesn't, you don't, it doesn't take part in any crossovers. It doesn't, uh, require you to read 15 other X books to understand what's going on. It is telling its story. And apparently that did cause some friction behind the scenes at Marvel as things went on. Uh, Not, not so much with Joe Casada, who was the editor in chief, but uh, Bill Jameis, who I think was the president or publisher. Um, He and Morrison didn't get along. And I think that's sort of why Morrison um, sort of soured his relationship with the company. And he was always more of a DC guy anyway. So I think he was happy to quote unquote, go home after he did X-Men.
1: And I guess you brought up the point that it's very self-contained, like what's going on in the Superman books and what's going on in the Wonder Woman books is definitely still going on and, and affects what's going on in JLA. Like you, from the beginning to the end of Graham Morrison's run, Superman goes from the Superman you recognize to the blue electric Superman back to the Superman you recognize. So and so that all that shit's definitely still going on and and uh acknowledged as such you know and, but with x-men you know like you know what's going on in uncanny x-men and it seemed like more like i don't give a fuck like <laughs> I, i've got my story to tell and i think it i think it, it works to the betterment of it because it does it doesn't have to bog itself down with like oh you know what huge like, company-wide crossover are we doing which is well, those are a lot of fun like those can be great But sometimes, like you said, like you, like, you know, we both kind of grew up a little poor. And so, you know, we don't have, you know, the money to buy all these different comic books to read a single story. So if I'm able to go to the comic book store and buy one book a month and, you know, for 12 months and get an entire story, that's, that's great. That's fantastic.
2: Yeah. And I I feel like at that point, Marvel, um, was sort of in a, what I would consider sort of a golden age, you know, Bendis had just started working there. Uh, Mark Miller was still doing a lot of work there. Like they were, and, and Bill Jamis had just sort of taken over and was really shaking things up. And, um, Joe Casada had just been promoted to editor in chief and they did a really good job for a while of letting at least the Marvel books you and I were buying like Punisher or Alias or whatever, kind of, be their own or daredevil uh you know just kind of be their own books and not having to deal and eventually you know you go back into event territory but um it was really refreshing after the 90s you know where it was just endless x events you know um to just be able to walk into the store and be like these are the five marvel comics i buy every month you know um and i don't have to worry about what's going on in 10 other books um
1: and no yeah i mean like yeah one of my earliest and fondest x memories is buying and collecting the executioner song storyline that was the first one for us yeah (laughs) which was like across all the x titles like for like four months and you know that and i i love that like you know i I, there is a time and a place for like like i said like the, the the huge event the crossovers and all that but again there's also i feel a time and a place to just be able to read a single title and get a single story.
2: Yeah. And I feel like the having the single title, single story thing works to X-Men's advantage in this case, because it really allows for deeper characterization. Um, Like, you know, as opposed to, I think those, those bigger stories are great for like, you know, it's like the Avengers movies. Yeah. They have some character moments and stuff, but they're really about things that are too big for any one hero to handle alone you know they're 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 widescreen events they're not um soap opera and x-men um you know the in the claremont burn heyday you know was exactly that soap opera and morrison really brings that soap opera back but also pushes it forward into some directions that both stuck and then didn't stick which is also something i guess we could talk about but um yeah it's um I love the different modes of storytelling that comic books afford, uh, and I think that in this case, letting Morrison kind of do what he wants or do what they wanted helped the book. I we we probably won't get into it in this arc, but when they did Final Crisis in two thousand eight, which was sort of the follow up to Infinite Crisis, you know, it was that summer's giant line wide event. Yeah. I think you could see the other books, the tie-ins, struggling because Morrison has such a singular vision and was pursuing it so relentlessly. Like it was almost like they gave him gave. It was almost like DC gave them the keys to the entire kingdom and they locked everybody else out while they did their thing. Um, and Final Crisis is really but, like interesting. let
1: them like peek through, so be like, okay, like I guess they're doing this. I guess I, I might as well accommodate that. And-
2: right. Exactly. And it's sort of. Um, I think it speaks to, you know, I think a writer like Brian Michael Bendis is great at the event stuff because he, he, I think that's just kind of how his brain works in terms of like, okay, this is what's going on over in the Avengers. This is what's going on in the X-Men, you know, like sort of, I think Marvel does these big retreats now where most of the writers show up and they figure out what's going to happen in the Marvel universe in the next year or two.
1: That makes sense to me. And then since like, okay, we have uh, 20 titles at some point we need to get everyone together and figure out like you know what's going on for the next two years and then and go from there like we're gonna like we're gonna do this like next summer this storyline you 10 people over here like your character is going to be affected so you know figure out how to lead into it and how to come out of it and like you 10 people over here don't worry about it
2: (laughs) whereas I think Morrison's strength is more um a singular vision i think Bindus is more of a, a is it polyglot now that m- better at multi-voicing i guess whereas morrison is sort of has this sort of unique perspective and it doesn't always jive well with uh, what other writers are trying or doing which is part of what makes their work so special um, but can also make it difficult to integrate with a wider, more traditional mode of comic book storytelling.
1: I think that is a nice place to wrap up, at least this episode of the Grant Morrison mainstream era arc. Yeah. Once again, we will be giving away so many things for you. The two things we'll be giving away for this arc are a copy of Grant Morrison's biography slash memoir slash history of superheroes, uh, super gods, which is one of Sean's he's called he calls it a holy text yes and he's read it several times and if you are a fan of grant morrison in, in general or just like uh, superheroes comic books it's definitely worth a read we'll also be giving away a copy of batman arkham asylum their work with dave mckean who you probably know from the uh, doing the sandman covers
2: yes every cover of the sandman
1: again if you want to if someone is claiming that comic books cannot be art this is something that you can hand to them and tell them with a little like sticky note that says, fuck you. On it. <laughs> uh, because also, it's, please
2: enjoy this book
1: <laughs> because it's so incredible. Like, like I said, it's a perfect marriage of, of text and image. Uh, we'll be giving away a copy of that, either the already released paperback or the soon to be released hardcover, depending on whether you want to get it now or you want to get it later. Uh once again, super easy to enter both of those giveaways. All you have to do is follow us on Twitter at Phantom Podcast and use the hashtag FandomUPodcast. Podcast. Super easy. And you know, one Twitter, uh like I said, super easy to enter, one entry per Twitter handle, and we will uh we will uh we'll draw a winner at the end of the arc. So you could win either one of those. It's gonna be fun.
2: Yes. I'm excited for you listeners because you <laughs> Uh, both of these books are a treat.
1: Thank you once again to Crystal O'Leary-Davidson for coming on with us to discuss Arkham Asylum. Uh, her The collection of essays that she helped edit, Monsters of Film, Fiction, and Fable, The Cultural Links Between the Human and Inhuman is available now in paperback through Cambridge Scholars Publishing. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. If you're listening to this show and so you and you enjoy the idea of digging into like the the subjects that we're discussing and sort of like you know why they become so important to us like more like you're going beyond like the surface level like oh that was fun or that was really cool like this is exactly what you like what you should be reading
2: yeah yeah it's um exactly it's it's this uh the the mission statement of this podcast but but written by people who are uh much smarter than either of us so
1: no yeah like we're just a couple of uh bums who ended up getting master's degrees like yeah these these are like like actual like published academics like writing about the things that that we all love so once again check that out thank you so much for listening We'll be back with episode two, where we will be discussing The Invisibles and All-Star Superman. Very Again, like two uh, very distinct and markedly different works. The way that JLA was so different from X-Men, The Invisibles, it's going to be very different from All-Star Superman. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Sergio.
2: Mine is Sean.
1: Be kind to yourself and to others.